0: And then let's turn our attention to our text today, which is in Titus chapter 1. Let's go ahead and begin by reading verses 5 and following. Titus 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for gathering this church together this morning. Thank you for promising, as you do in your word, to be present with us as we gather as your people. Jesus, we are so glad to know that you have not left us as orphans in the world, that you've sent us your spirit so that we might walk in obedience to you, in fellowship with you, and in fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And not only that, Lord, we thank you that you have given us teaching in your word about how you want your church to look. You didn't leave it up to us to figure it out. You gave us clear instruction And so, Lord, this morning I pray that we would be able to set aside our past experiences, our prejudices, and our uh, just impressions that come from our own minds about what your church ought to be and give ourselves to what you teach us it ought to be in the pages of your word. Lord, I pray that you would work uh, powerfully today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin today by asking a question. What makes a good butler? What makes a good butler? Probably you have never had to ask yourself that question because I don't see anybody in this room who has ever been a butler. Maybe that's not the case. Maybe you've been a butler in the past. I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't see anyone in this room who's hired a butler because we're all kind of normal people living in the 21st century and butlers seem like things from the past or maybe uh, from television. Uh, For most of us, the only butlers we know about are in books or movies, people like Alfred from Batman, right? He's a good example of a butler. Or maybe that one guy from Downton Abbey, which I admit I did watch with my wife. I don't remember his name, but he seemed like a good butler. See, generally today we rely on technology to do the kinds of things a butler might have done in years gone by. You know, we have cars, we have computers, we have a stove and an oven, we can heat up things in the microwave, but of course that was not the case in the pre-industrial age and many of the great households had a butler or something like it. In fact, if you were a wealthy person in antiquity, it was more or less expected, this was part of your uh, duty to the community to hire household staff. And uh, certainly the world of the New Testament, uh, that was a normal thing. And so what I want to do is just think about this for a moment. What is it that made a person like Alfred a good butler? Uh, he wasn't the, uh, uh, he, he, he's a fictional character, but I think he is, is a good enough example for us. And, and there are probably a lot of things that we could say that made Alfred a good butler. First of all, he recognized his place. I'm clicking ahead of myself here. But first of all, you recognize this place. In other words, Alfred recognized, I'm not the owner of this property. I am a steward of the property, and I I intend to leave it off better off than how I found it. Uh, Secondly, Alfred uh, stewarded not just the master's property, but he also stewarded his name, his reputation. Alfred was somebody who cared about uh, the Wayne name and the legacy of the Waynes. He was completely unconcerned with his own legacy, but relentlessly and fastidiously devoted to the honor of his master. Third, Alfred cultivated his character rather than relying on charisma. I mean, if you think about the Batman comics that you've read or the Batman movies that you've watched, I mean, is Alfred a dynamic, charismatic character in those movies? No, he's in the background. He's not thinking about his charisma. He's not thinking about being in the middle of everything. He's thinking about his character. It's his integrity that's more valuable than his ability. He is utterly trustworthy. You say, I guess uh, you're right, but so what? Well, the reason I ask the question is because while your family doesn't have any servants or butlers or stewards per se, like your house, I don't think anybody in here has any butlers, our church family... The family of the local church does. I'll explain what I mean. After Christ ascended to heaven, uh, he entrusted the work of the ministry to men that he called apostles. Uh, men like Peter, James, John, and Paul, and he sent the Holy Spirit in abundant measure to these men, and Jesus told those men in in the Gospel of John, he said, the Holy Spirit's going to come, the comforter, and he's going to teach you whatever I've commanded you, and he's going to guide you into all truth, and he gave these apostles a special commission to kind of lay the foundation for the local church throughout the entire known world, and part of their Part of their duty was to establish local churches, communities of faith that would represent the Lord Jesus in cities and villages around the Mediterranean basin. But after decades of ministry, those apostles realized, people like Paul recognized, that their time of ministry was beginning to draw to a close. And that's where we find Paul in uh, this letter to Titus and two other letters to a man named Timothy. Timothy was the pastor of a church in Ephesus. Titus had been left on the island of Crete in order to establish the churches there. And Paul writes to them during this time when he's about to conclude his ministry. And and it could be any day or it could be just a few years from, from then, but it was about to happen. And so he writes these letters for essentially two reasons. First of all, he writes to combat the harmful teaching that was already creeping into the fledgling congregations there. And then secondly, and perhaps more importantly, to teach these men how to lead these churches to walk in faithful obedience to the absent, in the absence of the apostles. So, for example, he tells uh, Titus in Crete, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you, what, you might put what remained into order. He told Timothy in Crete, 1 Timothy chapter 3, I want you to know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. In other words, he wants them to know what Jesus wants their congregations to look like. So folks, think about this. This is the situation in which we find ourselves. The apostles that walked and talked with Jesus, people like Peter, James, and John, and then later the apostle Paul, are no longer with us, right? And they've left us a written testimony of the teachings of Christ, the inspired words of the New Testament. But here we are, we're in this in-between time where the apostles have laid the foundation already and yet Christ has not yet returned and the mission isn't done yet. Does Jesus care what his church looks like during this in-between time? And the answer is obviously yes. When we read these pastoral epistles, And so this is why Paul is writing to Timothy and Titus. And in order to do that, in order to tell him how he ought to structure the church, he offers up this governing image, this this picture that ought to occupy our mind's eye when it comes to the church. Here's the image. He says, basically, the church of Jesus Christ is like a great household. The church of Jesus Christ is like a great household, it's a noble family. In the local church, we're all highborn brothers and sisters. And this image of the household sort of governs everything that he teaches in the pastoral epistles. And so that leads us to the question that I want to address today. If it's true that local churches like Indian Creek Baptist Church are like God's household here on earth, then where do the leaders fit in? People like the deacons and the elders and you know, the, the ministry staff and the Sunday school teachers and the small group leaders, where do the leaders fit into that image, to that picture? Now, and I want to point out that they're not supposed to be the head of the household, right? Because we already have a person who's the head of the household. Who's the head of the household if the local church is a household? It's Jesus, right? We already have a master. And so if the local church is like a great family, then the leaders in the local church, they're not the dad or the, the master of the house. The leaders are like the stewards, the butlers, the chief servants of the household. He calls them overseers, a word that means administrator or manager. He tells Titus, he says, an overseer as God's steward must be above Reproach. He's not the owner of the house. He's not the master of the house. He's a servant of the house. He's a steward. He's a butler of the house. And what we're going to find today is that the characteristics that make a good butler are similar to the characteristics that make a good pastor, a good overseer, a good elder. The best ones recognize their place. They aren't the owners of the local church, they're stewards that have been entrusted with the work of the ministry. They aren't concerned about their own glory and their reputation. They're concerned about the glory and the reputation of the master of the house, right? They they care more about their character than about their charisma. This is what the New Testament teaches. In several weeks, and I already mentioned this in our family meeting, but in several weeks, uh, the elders and I are going to come to you, and we're going to ask you to provide recommendations for men who can be added to our team of elders we're not replacing any of our current elders those guys are doing a great job and they're gonna keep going but we just have felt that it's time to come to you in accordance with our bylaws and ask for recommendations for men who could additionally serve in this role after that we're gonna go through the slow painstaking process of examining these men that you recommend to see if they have a willingness to fulfill the calling, to, to, the qualifications to, to fulfill the calling. This is going to take several months. And at the end of that time, you as a congregation will uh, have the final say, and you'll be able to decide whether to invite them to serve in this way or not. But that's a few weeks from now. And today, what I want to do is I want to give you a little bit of instruction to equip you to begin to think about this and pray about it over the next several weeks between now and when we ask you for those recommendations. You need to know that Jesus cares about who is leading his church. We want to be faithful to him in this matter. So we're going to answer two questions today. The first question is what or why, I'm sorry, why do we need elders? And then the second question, what should we look for when choosing elders? So let's answer this first question. Why do we need elders? Elders, where does that word come from? What does it mean? Well, it comes from the Bible. Again, we're convinced that Jesus didn't leave the leadership of his church a, a thing for us to figure out on our own, sort of like the color of the carpet or the walls. That's something that Jesus doesn't give us specific guidance on, like you have to have a blue church or a red church or something like that. That's, that's something we can figure out. But when it comes to the structure, the leadership of the church, he has some things to say about that. And this word elders comes from the Bible. We're convinced that Jesus tells us what to do uh, with his church. So that word elder is just the most commonly used biblical term to refer to a specific type of office in the local church. By the way, there are several other words that are used to refer to the same group of men. Teacher, elder, overseer, pastor, preacher, steward, servant. All of these words are used to refer to men who occupy This office, but that doesn't mean that they're different jobs or different offices. They're just words that refer to the same office and have different emphases. Uh, It's kind of like saying that the President of the United States is also the Commander in Chief of the Armed Forces, right? It's one office, but he is called by different titles Elder, Pastor, Overseer. These are different words that describe the same office. Now, the example in the New Testament is that one local church ought to have, if possible, multiple elders. Uh, Sometimes it's not possible, but where possible, it's better to have more than one. For example, when writing to the church in Philippi, Paul addresses his letter to the saints, the overseers, and the deacons. Did you catch that? One church, the church of Philippi, but there's multiple overseers. That's the pastors or the elders, and there's multiple deacons. So there's one church multiple overseers, there's normally a plurality, more than one elder in a single local church. When Paul addresses the elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, he addresses multiple elders, plural, one church, multiple elders. By the way, in that passage, Paul uses several terms to refer to the same men. He calls them overseers, he calls them elders, and he says you're doing the work of pastoring the church. All three words are used to refer to the same group of men. Another example, James, the brother of the Lord, speaks the same way in James chapter 5. He says, if you're sick, uh, call the elders of the local church and they'll pray for you. Uh, One sick person in one church, but more than one elder. That is the example of the New Testament. Jesus gave us this book for a reason. He wants us to follow his word with how we structure the local church. But just take a step back for a minute, a minute and, and think about, think about why that's wise. Why is that important? I, I can tell you, I didn't grow up in that sort of leadership structure, and uh, Manny and I, we could tell you stories. They wouldn't be very pleasant to hear. Uh, but situations where the Bible's clear teaching on plurality of elders was not followed, and some of the abuses that. Uh, arose out of that structure we literally moved our family across the country in order to be a part of a church where this was the model of governance because of some of the things that we saw the church suffer because there was a, a, a not a desire to follow the new testament's teaching on this matter why is this important because in the multitude of counselors there's safety that's just biblical wisdom folks uh, why would we think that one man making all the decisions for the entire church would, would lead to a good result? That never works out. Only one person is capable of having that level of authority, and that's Jesus Christ, right? Another reason we need elders is for institutional continu- continuity. Uh, some, I know I'm moving faster this, guys. We, follow me, okay? Some of you were here years ago when the pastor of this church resigned. Pastor Guy moved into another area of ministry. And for many churches, that could have been devastating. But for Indian Creek Baptist Church, and obviously I wasn't here at the time, it was not devastating. It was hard. It was probably difficult, I suppose. But did the bottom fall out? No. Why? Because there was continuity, in part because the church had been obedient in electing elders to exercise leadership. That was one of the things that gave the church margin, that gave the church some space to kind of work out and figure out and pray about what's next. The truth is that every one of the leaders in this church is going to be gone one day. Now, that could be 20, 30 years from now. I don't know. I hope it's very far in the future. But it will happen. If that happens and the bottom falls out, then we aren't doing our job to provide continuity. Paul told Timothy in First Timothy chapter or I'm sorry second Timothy chapter 2 what I've entrusted to you commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also you're just passing through hand off the baton remember that there's going to be another leader to follow you a plurality of elders enables us to do this faithfully why do we need elders well in my opinion if the lord has given us men who are qualified and called to this role then wouldn't we want to take advantage of what God has given his church, if there is a man who has the character and the skill and the calling to minister the word of God, to feed the flock, to protect the church from false teaching, isn't it better to have more men like that as opposed to fewer? I think it's better to have more than less. We have an embarrassment of riches when it comes to our elders, men who are good stewards in God's house. But, but sometimes, folks, listen, I, I think we take that for granted. And we don't realize how much value that brings to the local church. And I can tell you, if we lose that, if we lose that plurality of men, then you will begin to feel it. You'll begin to feel the tension that that would bring about. This church is far from perfect, its leaders are far from perfect. But I've seen what can happen in churches where the teaching in the New Testament is ignored. So, folks, we need elders. We need qualified elders. We need a plurality of elders. We need elders who don't just go along with whatever the pastor says, with what the loudest voice in the room says. We need men who provide real accountability to each other as a matter of conscience before the Lord. And we need to think about the future. Who will be the stewards of God's house moving forward? Who's going to be the leader when I'm gone? That's why we need elders so let's move on to our second question. What, uh, that's why do we need elders? Why, what should we look for when choosing elders? And forgive me, I know I'm moving quickly through this for the sake of time. Now, what should we look for when choosing elders? There are a whole host of interpretational issues surrounding this question, and I, I'm not going to get into all those because it would take probably several hours. So I'm just going to hit some of the highlights. We're going to use some broad strokes so you can have the teaching you need in order to make the decisions you need to make as a church moving forward. For example, I'm going to move forward under the presumption that our elders need to be male, that they need to be men based on teachings like 1 Timothy chapter 2. But I'm not going to defend that. I could talk about that for a long time. I'm just going to say that and then move on for the sake of time. We'll, I'm sure, address that at a later time because I know it's controversial But that's just part of who we are as a church, and I'm just going to assume that. Let me also say at the very outset that the standard in determining what an elder ought to look like in God's local church is not Pastor Jake. It's not Pastor Guy. It's not the pastor that led your family 10 years ago when you were at another church in another city. The standard is what, folks? It's the Bible. And and God clearly lays out the standard for elders in the pages of his word. And when we see we see when we study the pastoral epistles, and particularly 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 1, 5 through 9, that the overarching qualification of an elder or an overseer is that he must be above reproach or blameless in character and reputation. Uh, This is repeated more than once. In both passages, he tells Titus, If anyone is above reproach, an overseer as God's steward, must be above reproach. The same theme is underscored in his letter to Timothy. The very first thing he says to Timothy is that an elder must be above reproach. And he says it again at the very last part of that section in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We won't take the time to read it. So what that that tells me is uh, Paul is kind of bookending all the qualifications underneath this one perspective. He must be well thought of by outsiders. He must be blameless among the people of God. He must be above reproach, period. You say, what does that mean? That means two things. It means integrity of character and a reputation to match. It means if a man has a good reputation, but you do a little digging into his private life, and you find that his reputation is not warranted by the way that he's actually living... Then he's not qualified to be an overseer or an elder. It also means that if a man has good character, but for reasons that may not even be in his control at the time, he has a bad reputation in the church or in the community, then maybe he doesn't need to be an elder either. Why? You say that's not really fair to him. He can't help it if people think wrongly about him. Fine, but it's not about that man. Folks, and this is what we have to remember he's not the master of the house. This isn't about someone fulfilling their lifelong dream to be recognized as a spiritual leader. It's not enough just to say, hey, I really want to do that. It's about the reputation and the honor and the glory of Jesus. No one has the right to be a pastor. It's a privilege. And if your reputation makes Jesus look bad, then you don't need to be in that role whether it's your fault or not. Uh, Many churches and many pastors don't understand this. We're not owed anything. The overseer must be above reproach. He must have integrity of character and a blameless reputation. So, when you're praying, folks, and you're thinking about this question, and I know we're moving quickly through this, ask yourself is he above reproach? Is he blameless? Is his private life consistent with his public persona? Is he respected by his neighbors and his co workers? Has he been honest in the way that he conducts business? Or do people around town know him to be a man who isn't trustworthy? Has he been feuding with anybody? Is he, does he have a beef with a lot of people in the city? If a journalist went on our church website and saw his name, would they have a field day digging up dirt on this man? He must be above reproach. And it's that idea of being above reproach that lies in the background of all the other qualifications listed in these two passages. Uh, Between Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, there are actually 19 total character qualities that an elder candidate needs to possess. Now, out of those 19, only one has to do with skill or knowledge. He must be able to teach. Or Paul says to Titus, he must firm, hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to, the, to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, in other words, Paul is saying that one of the primary jobs of an elder or an overseer is that he needs to know how to conduct the ministry of the word. He needs to know God's word well enough so that he can identify counterfeit teaching and call it out. He needs to know how to communicate it skillfully. Now, folks, listen. That doesn't mean he needs to be a preacher. There are other ways to conduct the ministry of the Word. One-on-one counseling, leading a Bible study, facilitating a conversation or a discussion. He doesn't have to be a dynamic preacher, but he does need to have some ability to communicate God's Word. In other words, if the person that you're thinking of as a potential elder is impatient with learning theology and theological distinctions then he is probably not ready to take on the mantle of the role of elder. He do, uh, Understand, Satan is subtle with the way that he attacks the church with doctrine, folks. He, he doesn't come out and say, Excuse me, announcement, I am about to attack the church with false teaching. Get ready. No, he's sneaky. He tries to sneak it in. And the elders need to be able to identify those subtleties. He needs to be able to give wise counsel from God's word rather than just slapping a Bible verse on a problem in a simplistic way. People have real problems, and they aren't always simple. If someone comes to him and says, my spouse is is breaking our marriage vows and putting my children in danger, or you know, how do I deal with the fact that my adult child is is taking advantage of me, but if I send them out of the house, they're not going to be able to stand on their own two feet, what do I do? That man needs to be able to open up God's word and say, This is what the Bible has to say about that situation. And I can tell you that is not for the faint of heart. That's for someone whose mind has been steeped in God's word for years. Is he able to teach? Is he holding fast to the faithful word so that he can give instruction and offer correction? Folks, that is the one skill that an elder needs to be able to possess. That's it. That's the only type of knowledge he needs to be able to have is the knowledge of how to minister the word. All the rest of the qualifications have to do with character, and I'll just hit a couple of highlights, but all of these are important. Notice, first of all, in order for a man to be beyond reproach, above reproach, he needs to have a long track record as a follower of Christ. He can't be a novice for two reasons. First of all, if someone's a novice, a new person, new to the faith, you don't really know them that well. (laughs) You need to watch their life for a little bit. But then secondly, as as Paul tells Timothy, he might get proud. He might look around and say, I was on the fast track and and nobody else became an elder as quickly as I became an elder. Aren't I great? And so there's this temptation. So uh, choose someone who has been following Christ for a long time. Secondly, he needs to be a man who lives a lifestyle of sexual wholeness. Paul uses the term one woman man. People debate exactly what that means. What does it have to do with divorce and remarriage in the past? And we can spend a lot of time on that, but at the very least it means someone who has exhibited a habit of immoral living, of adultery, of fornication, or addiction to pornography, someone like that doesn't need to be an elder leading God's church. Again, this is a qualification that many people like to set aside. They say, Pastor Jake... We don't need to be legalistic. God forgives. And folks, amen. Praise the Lord that he forgives. But that's not the issue here. The issue is not about forgiveness. This is a question of blamelessness. Can a man have an affair with a woman that's not his wife, lie about it for months or years, cry crocodile tears after he's found out, and then be an elder or a pastor three or four months later? Folks, no. (laughs) It's not possible to be above reproach in that situation. This, listen, it's not about him. It's not, friend, if you want to be a pastor and that's your situation, it's not, I don't mean to be unkind, but it's not about you. It's about God's church. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. You wouldn't hire a butler who stole the silver from the last family he worked for two months before. Now, you might say something like, hey, I'll give you a job. You can go work in the garden and trim trees for six months, and I'll see how it goes, and then we'll talk about the next thing. I'm not saying there's no possibility in the future. I'm just saying until that question is cleared up, then we need to play it safe. You don't have to be mean, but you don't have to invite that person into a position of leadership and trust until he's proved himself beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's going to take a long time, especially if he only came clean clean if somebody caught him in the act. Okay? He needs to live a life of sexual wholeness. Next, he needs to be a gentleman rather than a brawler. He needs to be gentle instead of violent. Does he always argue with everybody? Is he always insisting on being right, on winning every argument, or can he let something go? How's his temper? And folks, we need to take this seriously. An overseer needs to show that he has his anger under control. I've seen, literally, folks, I have seen men bang their head against the pulpit because they were angry and losing their temper. May it never happen at Indian Creek Baptist Church. I sat next to one person who literally slammed his hand on the desk so hard that he broke his hand. He was so angry. We can't have men like that serving in leadership in in the role of elder. He can't be a violent man. He needs to be gentle. Uh, Some of the strongest men in this church are truly gentle. It's not a matter of strength or manliness to be someone who's violent and likes to fight. An elder cannot be that way. He must be a disciplined man with regard to what he consumes. He can't be a drunkard or a glutton or a drug addict. He needs to be ready to minister when it's convenient and when it's not. An elder needs to show evidence of financial contentment. Is he content with the things God has given him, or does he obsess about having more? Is he a generous man? What about his family? He needs to show... That he can manage his own household before we invite him to serve as a household manager in God's house. And again, I know I'm moving quickly here uh, on this particular qualification. Uh, I think Paul's focus is on the people currently living under his care. I know if you read first, uh, if you read Titus chapter one verse six, uh, it says in many translations that his children must be believers. The word translated believers there is actually an adjective. It's the word pistos. I think a better translation is the word faithful. And I think what Paul is actually addressing there is the need for an elder candidate to have his children who live in his house faithful to the rules of the house and to the governance of that man in his own house. I don't have time to make a complete case for that. Uh, but I, I, I think that that's where, where his focus on. The, the whole point is that the way this man leads his own household is a reflection of the reputation of Christ, and he must be above reproach. Now, look, there's a whole lot more that I could say about all that stuff. But the emphasis I want to make is that out of 19 character traits all grouped together under the heading of above reproach, All but one have to do with character and not skill. That's instructive to me. It tells me that when it comes to choosing leaders in the church, character always trumps charisma. Character always trumps charisma. Integrity is way more important than ability. We need to remember that, folks, in a small-town church. We don't live in a city with a million people with this huge pool of talent to draw from. So when someone comes along with a little bit of charm, a little bit of charisma, a magnetic personality, we immediately begin to think, hey, that's, this person would be great to serve in the role of deacon or elder. And we need to tap the brakes. What about his character? What about his reputation? Think about it this way. Imagine you're working in your house, and you need to hammer a nail into the wall. You're hanging a picture or something like that. And normally, what would you use to do that? What would you use? A hammer. hammer. Good. All right. You're with me. But imagine you're like me, and you haven't cleaned out the garage in many months. And when you go to find the hammer, it is nowhere to be found, and you don't want to spend all that time looking for a hammer because it's just one little nail. So what do you do? Well, I, you can do what I've done in the past. In a pinch, you can use the heel of an old shoe, right? Or a nice new shoe. It's not really what it's for, but it'll work. And folks, let's face it. Sometimes in a church like ours, that's what we have, a, pair, a, a bunch of old shoes. You, there's Pastor Guy, some cro- cross trainers. Here's Pastor Jake, Walmart, no brand shoes, Uh, There's Don Malden. He's an old leather boot. You know, like we've just, we've got what we've got. And this is what we have. And it's okay. I can use an old shoe to hammer in a nail and hang a picture because it's available to be used. But be careful because if you've been out walking your dog or tending to the animals in the pasture, that shoe may have some stuff on it that you don't need sticking to your wall, right? It doesn't have to be a fancy hammer. It can be an old shoe, but it does need to be clean. And what happens in the church is that we look at what's available, but we aren't checking to make sure that it's actually not going to do more damage than good. And we need to remember that character trumps charisma. Integrity is more important than ability. Folks, I know these things can seem tedious, but let's remember that this is Christ's church. Jesus, 2,000 years ago, carried a cross on his bloody shoulders all the way to Calvary. And that cross became the altar on which the Lamb of God was slain for sinners. And he bought all of us. He bought all of you. And he purchased us with his precious blood at the greatest possible price. By the way, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what God offers to you. The, the the forgiveness that was purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to you and he says, come to, you, to, to me all that labor and are heavy laden. Come and bring your sin and your burden and lay it at the foot of the cross. Come, believe in me. I hope you will so that one day you can be a part of this wonderful new people that will one day judge angels and rule the earth in a perfect, sinless, wonderful eternity. And folks, Indian Creek, given that this church is God's precious possession, bought with the blood of Christ. Let's care for this church the way that God wants us to do so. Let's be careful in the way that we choose our leaders. And so I want to ask you to do something specific. Would you begin to pray today and for the rest of this month for wisdom so that we can identify the man or men that God would have to serve in this role? Would you pray for faithful stewards Household managers who remember that it's God's church that bears Christ's name, who are unconcerned with their own legacy but relentlessly committed to the legacy of Christ. Men who value character more than charisma. That's what we're going to ask you to do in in several weeks. But let's begin that process of praying right now. Would you join with me now in prayer?